This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Noda. In this episode, I spoke with Will Larson, the CTO at Calm. Will is well known for his writing, including his two books, An Elegant Puzzle and Staff Engineer. In this conversation, we discuss a wide range of topics, including whether infra teams are chronically understaffed, his changing perspectives on build versus buy, thoughts on metrics, and more. Well, Will, thanks for being on the show today. Could you start off by just giving a quick intro and what you're up to right now? Super glad to be here. I'm Will. I work at Calm, lead the engineering and data science teams there. Been there for for a little bit. Before that, I was at Stripe, um, Uber, and a handful of other places. Also wrote a couple of books, wrote An Elegant Puzzle back in 2019, and last year finished um, Staff Engineer, which I was super, super excited to write. That's awesome. Well, you know, one of the things we look at on this podcast are all the different types of teams out there that are trying to enable and empower engineers. One of those types of teams are infra teams. And I know you're writing a book right now about infra teams. Can you share, you know, why now? Why? What the impetus is for writing that book? So a lot of my early career, I was working on, well, I was working in startups and startups are kind of like a bit of everything, right? But as I got deeper into my career, I was really did mostly infrastructure work at Uber and then at Stripe. One of the things when I came to Calm was kind of the excitement not to be doing only infrastructure work, although I do love it. I've just been thinking about kind of how much I'm forgetting about infrastructure with each each passing week. I think there's something really powerful about working in infrastructure as a certain worldview. But as you work in like other roles, uh, larger roles, you start forgetting that worldview a little bit. So I wanted to start writing it before I forgot it entirely. Documenting all your your knowledge and experiences, it sounds like. So before you worked in leading infra teams and now you're a CTO. So I'm curious, you know, how the world looks maybe a little differently from the, now that you're on the other side. You know, one thing I know you've written a little bit about this, but you know, when we talk to teams, they're sometimes struggling with really knowing how to advocate for their own existence and specifically like the business case for infra or enablement teams. I'm curious, how do you have that conversation within your organization now or how do you approach that as a leader? So as I'm doing some interviews for for this infrastructure book, this is one of the themes I would really focus on because it's such an interesting theme. And I talk about kind of the invisibility of successful infrastructure orgs. And so if you're if you're a bad infrastructure org, people know about it because people are complaining to your CTO, to the head of engineering, to each other, can't get anything done. The builds are too slow. The tests fail constantly. Have a three year old MacBook, so I can't, you know, use a new M1 build or, or whatever. Um, but really good infrastructure teams are kind of invisible, and, and I think when you're working infrastructure, this is pretty demoralizing. Because okay, like I'm doing amazing work, and no one notices. But I think the reality is, like almost every company you talk to, and there, there are exceptions out there. There are companies whose work, their business is infrastructure, right? If you're working at Render, if you're working at AWS, like you're selling infrastructure. Most companies aren't selling infrastructure. And you can think about Stripe, for example, like the payments infrastructure, that's what Stripe sells, but they don't really sell, you know, like compute infrastructure or something. And so it, it actually is a sign of like a business success when, when you're invisible, but you have to figure out how do you actually advocate for your teams and for your staffing and make sure like your, your infrastructure engineers have a career, despite the fact that they really should be invisible if everything is going really well. Yeah, that's really interesting and makes sense about, you know, success sort of meaning that there is no friction and the team's work is invisible. I'm curious when you think, reflect back on your career, do you think these infra teams were 
sort of chronically understaffed or appropriately staffed? Was it reactive? What was your journey like? Different growth rates of companies um, really change what what that means. And so I think when I was at Uber, we doubled headcount every six months. And so joined about 200 engineers, six months later, 400, six months later, 800, six months later, 1600, and it just kept going. And so I think the, the pain of infrastructure in that moment is, is, is like r- really brutally intense, you know, that the scale of traffic was also doubling or more every six months. And so I, I think in those cases, you're always going to feel like you're understaffed. And the challenge, though, is if you look at kind of the Uber's growth rate over the subsequent years, is that you do peak at some point and then stabilize into a, a more mature business that grows in a different way. And so the challenge for the business perspective, um, ignoring the, the pain and the plight of the actual infrastructure engineers, is that if you invest to make it work during the rapid growth era, you're radically over-invested for the, the later eras. And, and Uber went through a number, a number of layoffs, right? And so he's trying to figure out what is it going to look like now in this kind of painful growth state? What's it going to look like when the business stabilized? And, and how far out are you from the actual stabilization? So Stripe, conversely, really fast-growing company, but a company that grew about 30% headcount year over year. And there's lots of reasons why those businesses are not the same business. They're, they're, they're very different in lots of different ways. But 30% year-over-year growth, a little bit milder. You know, people can actually learn to get to know each other. So, sometimes we grew closer to 60%, but kind of 30 to 60% headcount growth. And you can, you can actually pause at that point. If you overhire a little bit, if you just slow down a bit, you'll, you'll grow into the team, even in a mature business. And so there depends a little bit on, on kind of the, the actual business you're supporting. But I do want to say, and I think the most important lesson is that if our infrastructure teams is often this perspective that you're being kind of ignorantly defunded, that there's like ignorant kind of perspective happening at the senior leadership level. But actually, I think it's it's a reasonable perspective. It's just like a really uncomfortable perspective to be stuck operating in if you're in the infrastructure team itself. That's really interesting. Yeah. And you touched on something Earlier, you also, when you were talking about the invisible work of infrastructure, and you, you mentioned that for a lot of businesses, you know, infrastructure isn't, they're not in the business of infrastructure. I know earlier we were talking a little bit about build versus buy. Does this play into that? And I know you mentioned maybe your, your opinions on this or your approach to this has changed a little bit over the years. Build versus buy, I, I think, is a really interesting question. And there's certain like companies that have strategies, like kind of very fundamental strategies. When, when, again, when I was at Uber, Travis Kalikanik, our, our CEO at the time that I, I was there, believed that Google would steal our, our software if we ran on the Google Cloud. He believed Amazon would steal our code if we ran on AWS. And so at that era, there, there was no cloud usage at the company. You know, I would argue that was like a little bit further on the paranoid scale um, than kind of the, the, the reasonable scale. It would be really bad for Amazon if it was, you know, known they routinely stole competitors like software or something. Also, like a violation of their contracts, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, companies do do really shady things at various points in their time. So it's not it's not like an idea like this is totally unreasonable. I, I understand how we got there, um, but that meant we we built everything in house. At one point, Uber built a like greenhouse um, kind of clone just everything in house. And you know, there's something to be said for this. Everything was like hyper hyper specialized. And it worked really well for the Uber context. But it's kind of like if you ever have interviewed like a, a senior um, Google engineer, like a really talented engineer from Google, they come to your programming interview and they actually can't program because they're so used to all the Google tools, the Google libraries, like, oh, this library just doesn't exist. And you're like, yeah, it just doesn't exist anywhere else. 
And they're great programmers. They, they just don't know how to work in any of the other tools that they use in kind of like a, a more general startup, an earlier stage startup. And you kind of specialize your, your team in kind of an awkward way when you go this direction. What I've really thought about for smaller scale companies, and by smaller scale, I mean like without those without a thousand engineers, those without like 2000 engineers, we really shouldn't be building bespoke infrastructure unless there's a really compelling reason why. And so I think about um, if you're doing an observability startup, observability, like storing traces, spans, metrics, it's actually an important like infrastructure problem for your business, your cost structure for an observability business. If you don't have like a specialized data store, it's actually really hard to do something competitive. Conversely, if you're doing like a an issue tracker startup, your database isn't that specialized, right? And, and there's really just no reason to do it. And you're going to lose a tremendous amount of time on, on it. And so I think companies, um, often you get like a little bit caught up on what engineers are excited about, but you have to really figure out your technology strategy from the business strategy, not, not from the excitement strategy. Um, if you, you know, design your vendor strategy around what's exciting for engineers, you will excite people today, but you'll make a business that's very hard to operate and not exciting because you're dealing with technical debt a year later. You know, you gave some examples there, for example, like greenhouse, right? And, and that made me think there's there's such a wide scope of what you could call infrastructure for a company. So when, you know, someone is from a standpoint of leading an infrastructure group, how do you sort of narrow down what you should actually be focusing on? And this is a problem that infrastructure teams think about a lot because there, there's like a, you know, throw it over the wall idea, right? Where you're... Um, you know, so a concrete example, joined Stripe. And, and Stripe was like a very different company when, when I joined. There were very few managers at that point. So I came in and I was managing um, 30 people directly. One of my peers was managing over 50 people directly. It was kind of like managers are, are relatively useless. And <laughs> maybe we are, but, um, you know, it, it was a very different company. And, you know, first thing that happens as a new infrastructure leader at a company is people start like bringing you stuff. You're like, hey, like infrastructure should probably own this thing. And so navigating that is really challenging, particularly like you're just getting to know the team, like the, the team kind of almost by default infrastructure teams and fast growing companies feel really under-resourced that people are coming in, like shouldn't infrastructure own the mail service? There, there was like a PDF generator. Shouldn't they, they own the PDF generation? Isn't this platform work all the way up to um, like the, the PCI environment where um, the credit cards were tokenized? Like, you know, hey, shouldn't you own this because it's infrastructure? And, and some of those things were like actually yes, and some of those things actually no. And so how did we think about that? First, there's just like, what can we actually take on today in terms of like staffing, resourcing skill sets? Second, there's, I think, a different mentality for certain things that you need the kind of a slow, thoughtful, safety first perspective. I think our, our PCI environment is a, is a great example of something that's like safety first. We'd rather not implement a feature this month, we'd rather slip by like a month or two months than introduce a security flaw. And so we always took like a safety first perspective there, even if we missed deadlines, it just like had to be that way. Whereas there's a lot of other things, um, I think like Stripe's Atlas product, like helping people incorporate new businesses, that doesn't need like a safety first perspective on a lot of it. Certain parts certainly, certainly do, but for the most part, it's much more of a product driven how do we iterate quickly? How do we add as much value quickly as we can? And, and velocity is a little bit more important than um, structured, like defensive thinking. And so to me, I think infrastructure, um, defensive thinking is like one of the things I think infrastructure can do really well. And it's like a, it's a pullback, it's a counterbalance to the product velocity, the growth velocity that you get for things that need to move quickly. 
The other things, though, is the reproducibility of kind of the use cases. And so if you only have one user, it's not a good infrastructure choice because you're really just part of that team that happens to be like positioned in infrastructure for some sort of like logistical, political reason. But you work for that team because they're the only user. If you have many different teams using the platform, then it's obviously like a great candidate for infrastructure. The challenge though is like a lot of things, people have them and they will sell you on the like the roadshow. It's like, hey, we're the only team using Elixir for our services, but down the road, we're, we're gonna many everyone should be writing Elixir. They just don't don't know it yet. And so I think one of the the key things, um, and, and this is like not a hypothetical example uh, at, at Uber. Like one team like started trying to run Elixir, and we're like, oh man, this is terrible. My first job at Yahoo, I did a lot of Erlang programming. And if, if you've ever seen those stack traces, they're just like the, the, the worst stack traces I've ever seen in any programming language. They're, they're not very helpful. So like someone's like, hey, how do you debug this? Like, I, I literally can't read this. I've done Erlang for, for, for a while. I just, I don't know. But figuring out infrastructure, like where the right interfaces are, I think such that you simply can't take on things beyond those interfaces, but you can actually scale the number of different users um, within those interfaces is really valuable. So that's for when we rolled out um, services at Uber, the Docker container was the primary thing that we did. Initially, it, that was a little bit too broad for what it's worth. So we moved a little bit more towards like, hey, we have like some template scaffolding. Well, we'll scaffold services in like one of like six different categories. And if you don't do that, just figure it out yourself. We're not going to help you. But finding that interface, anything beyond running the container initially, we just like didn't help with. And that worked out pretty well for us. I will admit, as a as crafty old Ruby developer, I've, Elixir has caught my eye, though. Uh. It's a great language. I think a lot of people love Elixir. And it's not it's not that Elixir is wrong. It's more that um, in infrastructure, again, your position forces you to be a little bit um, a little bit crufty, a little bit like thinking about the broader good, even in cases um, not supporting the specific good for any individual team, right? That makes sense. I was going to ask, I saw you recently did an interview that really focused on developer experience, and I saw a little chapter pop up in your book preview around that. You know, I'm curious, from the standpoint of an infrastructure team, where does this attention on developer experience kind of come into play? There's a couple of different ways to think about DX, right? And I think there's both, the most common way that people talk about DX is kind of the external facing version of it. And so kind of developer evangelists, et cetera. And sort of by like quirk of nature, um, the developer relations team with at Stripe was within this like infrastructure group, but it, it just happened to work out that way. It wasn't like a, a grand design, but like really, really phenomenal people really like loved getting to learn from them and work with them a little bit more closely. But, but I think it was like relatively understood what this external facing kind of DX concept looks like. I think interesting though, when you look at infrastructure, when you look at like migrations, when you look at like large rollouts of new systems, the, the major way these things fail is like a lack of attention to actually how users will use them. And so the number of use cases of, of very large migrations, um, new, new systems getting rolled out internally that, that fail, again, like I would say almost every time they fail because of lack of like basic, like who are the users? What are the different cohorts of users? What are the real needs within those cohorts? What is the risk slash appetite or lack thereof within the cohorts um, for this new thing we're rolling out? And so thinking, thinking of like a concrete example of, of this, um, Uber had a really terrible request routing infrastructure that my team was responsible for. And you can call it like request routing infrastructure, but basically it was like HA proxy running as a sidecar on every single server. And then you would go to localhost on a port that was statically allocated to a given server. 
and that would route across your whatever your correct routing kind of protocol was, maybe within the same region, what, 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 whatever. Really terrible, but it worked really, really, really well. And, and so this is like one of the challenges of like production infrastructure. It was like terrible, statically allocated global ports is like a terrible thing to do. They were initially recorded in a wiki where you'd have to go like look it up in the wiki. And if you didn't write it down in the wiki, then like someone else would claim it. And then you'd have like a production incident, but it works. And so there was a new system um, that was developed, partially rolled out, then ultimately scrapped. I think the challenge of that is it worked really, really well for a specific set of users, um, like one cohort, but it didn't work particularly well for many other cohorts. And I think when infrastructure engineers find an interesting problem, that there's an easy bias to like, hey, if this is useful for someone, it'll be useful for enough people to maintain it. But actually as a company maintaining like multiple different request routing tech strategies, it's like really hard to reason about. You get into like, you're looking at like a, a set of traces and they jump across different routing technologies where it's easy to lose spans. It's like just hard to reason about what's actually happening here. And so th this is again, um, I think if there's one thing that infrastructure engineers need to get better at, and this is, I think, a core theme I want to like keep delving into as I try to write this book, it's actually thinking about the cohorts, product management, essentially, right? Of like, what, what are you actually trying to build for whom and, and why or when will they adopt it? And again, a lot of the service migrations that you see people. So, you know, microservices really, really big, you know, like a decade ago, I think the thrill of microservices is, is kind of like ramped down a little bit. I think um, Kelsey, Kelsey is like, a, you know, services are the distributed monolith tweet or blog post or whatever from, you know, a few years ago kind of captured this idea. But if we just thought a little bit about how things actually work, what people actually need, the company's actually tolerant of, I think a lot of these problems are very obvious from the beginning. We just have to do a little bit more work to actually do product management and not think of ourselves as like pure technologists or to not think of technologists as like technology in the abstract, but actually technology in the service of like a real concrete problem we have. It's interesting. You said you're, you know, really focusing on this kind of intersection of product management and infrastructure engineering. In your past experience, are, are there typically product managers as part of these teams? Is that something you advocate for now? So I, I've not seen much success for that. So at you know, at, at Stripe, but also at Uber, I spent a lot of time talking to other folks leading infrastructure groups and say, like, hey, like, how have you solved product management? So some of what I've learned is that, you know, a classic problem is that the, there's the product manager's career path and then what, what's good for them. And then there's the infrastructure requirements and the intersections that like, usually not great. And so, for example, I spoke with folks at one company, they're like, hey, we can only get very junior product managers to work in infrastructure. After they mature a little bit, they want to bounce out to work on the consumer side of the business because the scale is larger, the opportunity for business impact, like all the problems that make infrastructure hard as like infrastructure leaders, like we're invisible, like also impact the product managers in the exact same way. And so I think it's, it's, it's hard to find people who are really excited about that to work in a infrastructure team within a company. This isn't true for what it's worth if you're like an infrastructure business that is selling a piece of infrastructure. So I think it's much easier to find a product manager who wants to work if you're, you know, like Datadog or something selling like the actual product to end users. It's really the internal infrastructure teams that, that suffer this problem the most. But my experience is it's, it's very hard to find these folks. It's very hard to find them for internal teams in particular. So what we did at Stripe is we relied on the kind of the, the staff plus engineers and the eng managers together to, to do this. It does mean that those jobs get broader, more expansive than at some companies. But, you know, one, one of my personal kind of hobby beliefs is that we've gotten a little bit too specific with career ladders. 
and that we're sort of like forcing people into specific holes. And we talk about, um, we don't want people to be fungible, replaceable blocks, but we also want like perfectly clear, articulate career ladders. And we can't have both. We, we have to have flex on one dimension or the other. That's really interesting. So yeah, that, that makes sense how, you know, being a PM that's internally facing, you have that opportunity to, you know, ship the next big product for the company or, or launch the next big feature. Well, this kind of ties into the next topic I wanted to go into. But, you know, I noticed you've been asking in your interviews a lot of leaders about what metrics they track. I'm curious, you know, why that's of particular interest to you. There's a couple of different things I'm interested about when I dig into the metrics question. The first is I think there's a question of like how metrics oriented are are these leaders at different different stages. And I think at some levels, like you could actually run an infrastructure organization of a certain size without looking at the metrics at all, as long as you have kind of some sort of like safety mechanisms, like monthly business reviews or something like that, where you're not looking at a dashboard, but you're kind of holding people accountable to goals they've committed to. And you're looking at those goals like on a monthly basis with them. But the teams themselves are looking at them on like a weekly, daily basis or whatever. Also an interesting question of like, how much are people looking at metrics around goals and how much are people looking at metrics around like reality? And so there's like, there's a Datadog dashboard out there that has like the number of requests that are coming in, how many of them are failing, how slow are they, et cetera. That's like how the thing actually works. And there's like a dashboard, which is like our, you know, 99.99% of requests like completing within 500 milliseconds. And, and that's like, yes or no, but, and, and that's like more of like an SLA that you might set, like commit to like a, a user around or something like that. So really that's, a, I'm just trying to get like, what are people actually looking at at different levels of seniority? Are they looking at real metrics or kind of these um, goal metrics that people are going to hold them accountable for and why? And, and so far, um, no super clear trend. Um, th- there's obviously a lot to say on the topic of kind of engineering metrics. I think it's an interesting one. The biggest thing I would say is that for any metric, um, the, the more you look at one top level metric, as opposed to decomposing it across like cohorts, categories, or, or whatever, it gets a lot more interesting. So for example, looking at your latency by region is a lot more interesting than looking at your global latency, looking at your CPU utilization of your fleet across data center or across um, team it's allocated to like data engineering versus um, machine learning versus like production, like those are way more interesting. And so the, the more that people find segments to look at, the, the more confident I am that they're looking at something meaningful or other than just a anxiety reduction dashboard, that nothing's like completely wrong. Sure, but that's not that interesting. Well, you touched on developer or just engineering metrics in general. So I do want to poke at that a little bit more. You, in one of your blog posts you wrote, and I copied this quote, you said, at pretty much every company I know, the question of how to measure developer productivity comes up becomes a task force and produces something unsatisfying. So I'm curious as what types of experiences you're referring to. Right. So at most companies, this first comes up um, from this topic of it. Hey, how, how do we figure out um, which of our costs on engineering are actually innovation versus kind of maintenance costs so we can treat them differently in, in, our, in our books? And then you're like, hey, which costs really are infrastructure or maintenance or operational costs? which are like innovation costs. And you kind of go down this rabbit hole. And I've never seen a company actually be very happy with this ever. Um, so that's kind of one category, one entry point to this, this like, thought. The other one is like when, you know, CEO, the CFO, someone's like, hey, like, what is like the intellectually pure way we should be sizing our engineering team? It's really hard to answer that question. And so I think the challenge is like heads of engineering, like VPs, et cetera, are in this room and they're being told to like justify exactly how big their team is and how big it needs to be to accomplish certain goals. 
And they're in that room with folks who, who can actually do this at a higher degree of, of confidence before you dig in uh, to, too deeply. And so, for example, if you're in the room with someone on growth who actually is like spending like a, you know, like a large like user acquisition budget, they can talk to how, how, how much budget each person is like allocating and the, the results of that budget they're allocating. Like, oh, that, that really makes sense. Or if you're talking to sales, they can do the exact same thing. Like, oh, like each additional hire I bring on is going to drive an extra like $1.2 million of ARR this year. Like, wow, like how much ARR does your next engineering hire drive? No one knows. And, and I don't even think that's a, a real idea. But ultimately, um, to kind of like pivot that, like I think this idea that we're going to find metrics that help answer this question is a little bit misguided. I think when we have metrics, what we what those metrics really tell people is that you're paying attention to something and so that you're you're in the details and so they're going to trust you. But these these metrics build trust. The actual metrics themselves aren't that helpful for what they're being used for in many cases, which is like headcount, team sizing, etc. They're really good at debugging teams and debugging um, productivity, but they're they're terrible at actually understanding how big your team should should be. I'm curious before this call we had just sort of mention this new NJOPS thing that is sort, of, is sort of a trend. I'm curious, you know, we've met with a few NJOPS leaders and they've sort of differentiated themselves from traditional, you know, dev prod or infra teams and, and being a little more closer to, for example, HR, a little more holistically focused on like culture and practices as opposed to just tools. I'm, you know, I'm curious on your take on NJOPS as a function. I think NJOPS is a pretty exciting idea. I think... You always have to be a little bit skeptical about any function that spins up to take work off another function. And it's because the, the, the function who's having work taken off them is kind of incentivized to, to do that. And so I think in a lot of companies, people really want to hire more managers because engineers are like, oh, the managers are going to do the, the work I don't want to do. Or in a lot of companies, people are like, hey, we should hire more QA because I don't want to do testing and we're going to push this off onto testing. And if you look at a lot of the, the trends in the industry, DevOps in particular, we've pushed a lot of work back into the software engineers kind of like wheelhouse where, they, you know, they used to be, hey, I'm just writing the code. Then someone else figures out how to like build, deploy, um, test and operate it. I just write the code, man. Um, so we've pushed that back and the engineer um, role has gotten really complicated. I think the same things happen for engineering managers where, um, you know, at when I entered the, the industry, I had like two one-on-ones in a year with my manager and it, they weren't like super insightful one-on-ones. It was kind of like, Hey, like we're going to give you a raise or like, Hey, like you're doing fine. And it was like, that was kind of it. It was like two, one every six months. And that, that was, they would just show up on the calendar every six months. And I was like, great. I guess my manager remembers my name. And that, that was really it. The level of management we expect from managers today is like radically different. You know, I, I spend an, an hour a week with many of the folks that I, I manage directly. And that's like not totally un, un, abnormal, right? Like many people might be spending 30 minutes a week. It depends a little bit on like the roles, the velocity, how long you've been in role, et cetera. And jobs is, as I see it, really trying to figure out how to create more bandwidth for kind of senior engineering management to kind of operate a lot of the, the, the organization. So, you know, you think about calibrations, for example. So HR teams do that um, for, for many companies, but some companies, the, you know, the, the managers just do it themselves. And then I think the NJOPS is similar. We're engineering onboarding. Many times the, the managers would just do it themselves, but NJOPS can, can help with that. I think the advantage of NJOPS is that at a certain scale, um, doing things well and consistently saves a tremendous amount of time. And so to me, it's really just a question of like, when does it actually make sense to start bringing these folks on? 
And how do you make sure that they're actually doing high quality work? And I think onboarding is a great example of something where it's very unclear whether onboarding is actually good or not and figuring out the right metrics. And so, for example, um, at Uber, one of the things we did in onboarding was that can every single engineer coming in spin up a new service? This created a lot of problems related to the statically allocated port thing I talked about, where we now started giving out like, you know, a thousand ports every week for, for engine onboarding, which was not going well for us. Fix that pretty quickly. But figuring out what are a few outcomes that actually matter. Otherwise, it's easy to just say spending time on something makes it better. But that's like not actually true. Spending time on things does not necessarily make it better. That makes sense. I'm curious, when we you know talk to engineering managers kind of at the intersection of NJOPS functions, you know, they talk, it, it seems like part of the impetus for these NJOPS orgs is to kind of, like you said, kind of fill in the gaps of what maybe engineering managers don't really have the capacity to do, you know, some things like focus on onboarding. I'm curious, you know, do you think there's managers are under, for example, too much pressure just on sort of delivery items that they're not able to kind of do the work of building good practices or, you know, onboarding experiences, things like, do you think there's, do you think that's part of the reason these NJOPS functions are sort of popping up? I think that is definitely one of the, the things that's happening. I will say, so I am love systems thinking, love systems thinking. But I, as you go to like any company, particularly any growth company, there's this tension between how do we do better meta work? Like how do we onboard more effectively? And how do we do this really specific, important critical task? How do we, how do we finish our SOC 2 type 2 audit this week um, or, or something like that? And so I do think that managers are often caught between these two different tensions. And I think one of the challenges, similar to like as we've made the software engineer role very complicated, relatively complicated by moving things up from the you know operation side into the, the engineering role, we've just pushed a lot into the manager role in terms of kind of the increased quality of management we expect from folks. But that other work that they were doing before, it's not like managers weren't doing anything before. They were doing a lot of work. You know, that work's getting squeezed into increasingly small segment of their time. That work has to go somewhere or just to fall to the floor. And so I do think that NJOPS has, has helped in terms of capturing that work that's just falling. It's gotten squeezed out by managers actually managing their people in like more effective ways. But this strategy work, this like operational work to like run a business as opposed to running a team, I think that is getting squeezed out. How do we find more space for that? And to me, um, you know, NJOPS one solution. I, I'm really excited to see the industry experimenting, trying that. I do hope there are more different approaches we experiment with. It, I've never seen one different idea like work everywhere. TPMs are similar to, to NJOPS in this specific way, right? Many companies have rolled out TPM. It works really well for many companies, but there's no consistency across what TPM means. That like, if you talk to four companies, you're like, this is a totally different job. It just has the same the same name. I think NJOPS is kind of in that phase right now. I'm curious to see how how it falls over the next you know like decade. This balance between running the business and running a team, how have you approached that personally, you know, with your reports and managers at different companies? An understated kind of reality that I think is really important is that when you work with the one team consistently for like four plus years, the amount of time you spend running that team really goes down. Um, you just know them really well. You know what they're going to be excited about. You know what they're going to be pissed off about. You know, they're, they're, they're partners, you know, like they're, they're kids. You just, you just have these like depth of relationship. And in really fast-growing companies, you, you never get there because the team that you're working with keeps changing so quickly. 
And so I do think that these fast growing companies are like exceptionally challenging in terms of getting space to actually operate the business. And, and that's difficult because these businesses are changing really, really, really quickly as well. And so I, I do think that um, one, if you just like stay with the same team for long enough, this gets a lot, a lot easier. That being said, I do think for me, like a good week, I might have like eight hours to actually operate the business as opposed to kind of operating the team. And, and, and that's like not really enough. And so I think, you know, we're, we're in a very strange year, right? 2022, we're going to see a lot of businesses that are, are not going to come out of 2022 in the same form they're going into it. As you look at the, the funding changes, as you look at the, the macroeconomic shifts happening. And a lot of that's, um, you know, in my mind, because we're spending too much time locally, like kind of optimizing the team and not kind of looking at the business more widely. That being said, I think this year is going to be a year when people are forced to look at the business more widely simply by the, the rate of change around us. And I think that's going to be very, one, very painful, but, but two, I think good in terms of helping us like reset a little bit away from only focusing on team management. We're only in getting a little bit of a broader, more equal kind of perspective on it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those thoughts. I want to switch topics to something a little bit tactical because it's something people have been asking us about. You have a chapter on surveys, developer productivity surveys, and you wrote something kind of funny in that in that chapter, something about how, you know, in the best case, you get all this great insights about your organization. In the worst case, you get this data, you do nothing and everyone kind of is, is bitter about it. So what's what's been your experience with running these types of surveys? Surveys are really interesting, right? And there's lots of lots of surveys out there. Um, I think one one example I can think of from from running a survey um, was we had a specific infrastructure engineering team at Stripe who had some users who were complaining about them a lot. Like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna solve this by like surveying the users frequently. And we got um, you know monthly feedback, like, and we built like an MPS model, you know, and we got like what are the concerns, what's going well, blah blah blah. blah. And we showed like really significant improvement to NPS over over the three three or four months, and you know, like significant like commitment excitement about the platform. But the people who were complaining never stopped complaining, and they they never actually got more specific about their complaints. It was more of a like we don't like it, we want to do it a different way, and. This was like kind of demoralizing, right? Because you think you're going to roll out a survey and you're going to fix this problem of like lack of alignment with a certain like cohort of your users, but you can't necessarily. And in this case, um, it, it wasn't a situation where there's like a clear complaint and we weren't hearing it. And this was more of a like broken trust or broken relationship between two different groups. And so I, I think surveys can't solve everything. And I think going into that, we actually knew that there was a bad relationship there and we kind of hoped this would help create some visibility into that. But it turns out um, it just, it didn't actually resolve anything for, for us. Um, so that was an example of a case where the survey, I think intellectually pure way to solve the problem we had didn't actually have much of a successful outcome. Conversely, I think we ran like a, a broader developer productivity survey um, every, every six months or so. And this was like really, really helpful for us. And it was helpful. We got to see like which different platforms were degrading at different rates so for us, there was the Ruby and the Scala infrastructure, right? Two different kind of major components. And the, the lived experience in those two different ecosystems was very, very, very different. And having that visibility was super helpful for us because it helped us pick for the next projects, where do we want to go? It also helped us pick like what not to invest in. And so, for example, there are certain improvements on the Scala side. The ecosystem there, just the number of people working in it was too small to make a large investment, even though they were very unhappy with it. And that data is, is really helpful. But where we got a lot of success was not tracking like net promoter score or like satisfaction. 
it was more like understanding how things were moving in relation to what we were doing. So for example, we, we've made like a tremendous number of build improvements over the years and seeing whether people like got happier, by which I mean, they started complaining about something else. Not, not like literally happier, but like a new number one complaint. That's like how we were able to understand, did this actually solve the problem or not? And, you know, cohorting is like really important as well. One person I spoke to um, for my interviews talked about looking at um, the complaints from engineers coming from long-term companies. So for example, if someone was just at Facebook for seven years coming in, that complaint is going to be meaningful in a different way than someone who has only worked at very small startups and are just coming in. And so kind of understanding how people's background impacts their perspective on, on whether things are good or, or best I've ever seen or worst I've ever seen does depend a lot on, on where they're coming from. And pulling in the, the HRIS data was, was really helpful for that. And I'm curious, you know, as you ran both examples, the monthly and then the, the every six month, you know, did you feel, because you touched on this in your, in your book or post, you know, did you feel like there was enough of follow-up happening that made the survey a long-term sustainable thing? Or in some cases, have you seen them not be sustainable? Yeah, I've definitely seen both both cases. So I think for the the six month one, I mean, the, the organization on developer experience was, um, man, I, I want to say it was in maybe fifty folks or so when 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 I left, and so that that's a lot of folks, right? And we were spinning up new teams, we were like shifting priorities, etc. So every six months, if we couldn't do like three or four major projects for them, some, something was going wrong, and then that that was on us. So I thought it was really valuable there, particularly. Um, Seeing places where people had complaints and then going and talking to them directly was where we got the, the best insight. So figuring out where are the hotspots and then going and talking to them directly, not relying on the survey. I, I think as you've you've done a lot of surveys, you know that if you if you don't actually go do follow up, people have like pretty abstract complaints like this is terrible. Yes, um, tell me more. Or like this is amazing, but it was like also like okay, like what what does that actually mean? Because sometimes this is amazing means like my friend did it. And sometimes this is amazing means like my builds are really fast. And you, you have to like dig in to figure out which which of those actually actually means something. Yeah, I'm curious when you would run these surveys, you know, was there a percentage of sort of feedback or insight you would generate that was actually not actionable to the developer experience group, but rather were complaints about things just happening on the local teams that they needed to do? And how did you kind of respond to that? Oh, 100%. And so I think, for example, um, a team with really um, weak onboarding practices is going to come across as a team that really doesn't like a lot of your tooling, right? And so how do you figure out, is this just because they're joining a team that you know doesn't do any onboarding versus how do you figure out like if, if your tools are actually like too hard to use? Some definite judgment in there. And, and that's where I think having people with great relationships, this is one of the reasons I love embedding for what it's worth. So something I've always tried to do with infrastructure teams is have folks on there, you know, once a year, once every two years, go spend three months on a partner team working as an engineer on whatever whatever they do. Because one, they get to bring um, some of the context of how do the tools actually work. Two, they get to bring like, okay, here's why the tools like, actually don't meet our user needs very well. But three, they, they just have this relationship where you get that kind of complaint next time. Like, hey, like, could you go talk to this team you embedded with? What's like really going on there? get like a little bit more detail there because I, I think it's, it's attribution is like always a challenge for for errors and so I think you do just have to dig into it to try to have a clear point of view but the reality is like some of your teams that you work with just won't be super put together at certain points in time and that's like unavoidable but you do have to dig in just to know like hey am I gonna do something about this or not and sometimes what you do is like literally nothing you're just like not not gonna affect change there 
you know, sometimes teams are in like a death march to like ship a product and like nothing you do will make them happy. They're, they're just like in a really bad spot and that's okay. Um, but sometimes, you know, like, hey, like the talk to NJOPS team, could you help this team with onboarding? They need a little bit of help to kind of like bring together like a, a care team to help the team get over a bit of a hump that they're in. Yeah, I like that analogy of NJOPS as a care team. I think that that is similar in, to the ways that they sometimes view themselves. So, well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Will. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. This is fantastic. Thank you.